the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. We're glad to have you with us. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the CEO of First Image, and that includes, uh, that's the umbrella organization for the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area, the Heart Program, the Reality Project. He's going to join us to talk about some changes coming to First Image, what the changes are and why will be the topic of our conversation. So stick around for that. We're also going to talk with Adam Michelle. He's Senior Policy Analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget with the truth about how much America Americans are paying in taxes. In fact, there is a, a chart associated with a column he wrote that gives you an opportunity to see in your congressional district what the average tax cuts actually were. So you can kind of put your place. It also uh, outlines uh, for certain um, incomes what the tax cut would have been. So it can be useful in determining it didn't feel like a tax cut. What did I get one? So he'll be joining us. And I've also put a link to his uh, column on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. So you can check that out uh, there. But first, this uh, this midday, I had an opportunity to go to Southwest Christian School, where my brother-in-law, Dwayne Stutzman, has been the principal for the last 19 years. I remember meeting Dwayne when I was at the University of Oregon on the rally squad. He was an all-American wrestler, and he was an impressive guy. I mean, he was... He was muscular and handsome, great personality, just a really neat kid. I say that because we were kids back then. Anyway, I've watched him. He's married my sister. They've um, had a wonderful life together. He's bright. He's capable. He left a corporate position for the sake of ministry. He was invited by Southwest Bible Church to serve as the uh, principal at Southwest Christian School uh, a few years into his uh, corporate life. And I remember at the time thinking, Okay, you have a really good corporate job, and now you're considering, and it wasn't just a matter of, hmm, does it pencil out? He and his wife, my sister Donna, were praying about whether or not this is what God wanted him to do, and he was perfectly open to whatever direction God might lead him. Well, the decision was made to leave the corporate uh, world for the sake of ministry, and for the last 19 years, he served as the principal at Southwest Christian School. Well, I attended the chapel earlier today because um, they were spending some time uh, just focusing on and acknowledging the contribution that he had made. And what a tremendous break it was for me in the middle of the day, not only because they were honoring my brother-in-law, who is somebody who is worthy of honor. Uh, he's a man of character and diligence and a lot of things that I could say. But it was wonderful to sit at my desk this morning and start sorting through all the websites and the newspapers and all the bad news and just the confirmation that the world system and the human heart is incapable apart from the wisdom that we can only derive from God to somehow manage our own affairs. So I get up from the desk. You know, you have that sort of pall that's cast over the morning. I drive to Southwest, uh, and the first thing that happens is a group of high school students, they're on the platform, and they're leading worship. They picked a wonderful song that was a, a great pick for, you know, a weekend before uh, the Easter week, which is coming up very quickly. 
And anyway, I could hear behind me the voices of all these young kids singing. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that kind of roll your eyes and um, look at your watch or fiddle on your phone. These were young people who knew what they were singing and they were singing with conviction. And that started the waterworks right then. Um, I was so encouraged and I looked around the room. One of the little kids is a is my um, grand niece. She's in kindergarten this year, little Anaya. I looked around that room and I thought of all these young people um, and I was reminded that God is at work in the hearts of every generation, including the ones that came after my own. And I just was encouraged. But anyway, it was a, an opportunity to focus on the service that my uh, brother-in-law, Dwayne, I, I, brother-in-law, he's my brother, Dwayne. He is adventurous. He is industrious. He's resourceful. I mean, the guy, his hands are always at work. He's always being prayerful. He's always thoughtful about what he's going to do. Well, he's uh, retiring after 19 years at the end of this academic school year. Um, and I was reminded of the eternal imprint that he has left on the lives of hundreds of young people, not by simply showing up in the principal's office and filling out the paperwork, but making a concerted effort to know the names of each of those students, to pray over them, to pray for them, to be concerned about their families. And as uh, the family would ask him, well, how's work going over these 19 years? He always uh, as a man of faith, would um, would have something favorable and good to say about the work that God was doing, even on those days when it was a bit tough. Um, there were pictures that they had a little slideshow at the beginning and pictures of him with uh, kindergartners who had just graduated. And then in some of those pictures, that kindergartner was then seen with him at the high school graduation and then seen with him officiating the wedding. And it just uh, it was just so encouraging to think about 19 years of service uh, and the, again, the eternal imprint on the lives of hundreds of young people that will be left behind. Uh, he has had a profound love and concern for the families he has served and continues to serve so well. And I'm really excited uh, to see the next chapter of uh, of this remarkable life. And I'm convinced that he will finish well because he's a man uh, who will not sit idly by. He's going to continue to seek the will of God and whatever that um, might be, I know that he's willing to do it. So I was encouraged today over at Southwest Christian School at their chapel. And I know that maybe not today, maybe another day of the week, there were kids in Christian schools all around the Portland metro area who similarly had a time of chapel and reflection on God's word. I am encouraged today. And uh, I tell you, when I came back from kind of on the verge of tears and trying to mask that. But anyway, when I came back to my office today, I was encouraged and inspired and uh, had a little bit different perspective as I went back through the news. God is still on the throne. He's still in charge. His will will be done. The things that he says he's going to accomplish will be accomplished. And he'll use people like me and you who are imperfect and uh, apart from his enabling, incapable of doing anything of any real value. So uh, I don't know about you, but whatever the news is today, I'm encouraged. So there you have it. Well, some of the headlines uh, for the day. The Attorney General, William Barr, is assembling a team to investigate the origins of the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign and made a statement during a hearing earlier today that, yes, he believes spying took place. Well, that erupted into what is another yet another firestorm in Washington. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But Republicans repeatedly have called for a thorough investigation of the FBI's intelligence practices and the basis of the since discredited Russian collusion narrative following the conclusion of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, which will be out uh, within the next uh, 
seven days or so. Meanwhile, the Attorney General um, returned to Capitol Hill for the second of two days of hearings about the Justice Department's budget. Again, we'll talk more in detail about that in just a few moments. President Trump's high-level overhaul of the Department of Homeland Security continued today, or yesterday rather, with the announcement of the department's acting deputy secretary, uh, secretary resigning amid reported historic surge in illegal immigrants and asylum seekers at the border. Now, part of that is to allow the incoming uh, head of the department to choose his own number two or her own number two. But Claire Grady was technically the next in line to replace Kirsten Nielsen. She resigned on Sunday or was invited to resign. The president chose Kevin McLeanan uh, to head the Customs and Border Protection as acting secretary. In the meantime, 2020 presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders has announced that he'll release 10 years of tax returns next Monday. Filings expected to show that the Democratic Socialists made millions from book sales and from serving in uh, Congress. Uh, Sanders told The New York Times in an interview published uh, yesterday that he hopes that his release will make President Trump more inclined to follow suit. Yeah, I don't think so either. Actress uh, Lori Laughlin and her fashion designer husband, Massimo something, told the uh, uh, two of the 16 parents indicted on new fraud and money laundering charges in the college admissions cheating scandal. Well, they could face 40 years in prison. I'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lori Laughlin could face prison time, well, anywhere between uh, 40 years in prison, a maximum of 20 years for each of the charges, according to a report, where the Fuller House star and her husband, along with 14 other parents, are being charged with a second superseding indictment that, with conspiring to commit fraud uh, and uh, money laundering, the Department of Justice revealed in a statement Uh, Last month, Laughlin and uh, her husband were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud for allegedly paying $500,000 to get their daughters into the University of Southern California as crew recruits. The young women didn't play the sport, so you can see why somebody might be a little, I don't know, put out. Mm. Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be headed toward a historic fifth term as Israel's prime minister with a close to complete uh, unofficial election results, giving his uh, right wing Likud and other nationalist and religious parties a solid majority in parliament. The outcome affirmed Israel's continued tilt to the right and further dimmed hopes of a negotiated uh, solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict under current circumstances. Re-election will also give Netanyahu an important boost as he braces for the likelihood of criminal charges and a series of con- of corruption scandals. In fact, there may be some workaround while he remains in office. And during five, um, I should say, on this day, um, back in 2018, during five hours of questioning from a U.S. Senate panel, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, deflects accusations that he'd failed to protect the personal information of millions of Americans from Russians intent on upsetting the U.S. election, though he concedes that Facebook needed to work harder to make sure the tools it creates are used in good and healthy ways. Well, there have been many other controversies since then. And on this day in 1947, Brooklyn Dodgers president Branch Rickey purchases the contract of Jackie Robinson from the Montreal Royals. And on this day in 1925, the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, The Great Gatsby, is first published by Scribner of New York. Well, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr testified uh, today 
that he believes spying did occur on the Trump campaign in 2016 as he vowed to review the conduct of the FBI's original Russia probe. And the focus of a related internal review shifted to the role of the key FBI informant. I think spying did occur. The attorney general said the question is whether it was adequately predicated. I think it's my obligation. Congress is usually very concerned with intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies staying in their proper lane. He testified before a Senate appropriations subcommittee while noting that the spying on political campaigns is a big deal. End quote. Well, the comments follow a new report that the Justice Department's internal watchdog also is scrutinizing the role of an FBI informant who contacted members of the Trump campaign during the 2016 election as part of a broader review of the early stages of the Russia investigation. The New York Times reported that Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz is looking into informant Stephen Halper's work during the Russia probe, as well as his work with the FBI prior to the start of that probe. Halper, an American professor who reportedly is deeply connected with British and American intelligence agencies has been widely reported as a confidential source for the FBI during the Bureau's original investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Well, that official counterintelligence operation was opened by then-senior agent Peter Stroke, uh, who was since um, fired from the Bureau. Well, during the 2016 campaign, Halper contacted several members of the Trump campaign, including former foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, and former aide um, Carter Page. Page also was the subject of several Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Acts, or FISA, warrants during the campaign, which is an issue at the heart of the IG's investigation. Republicans, including President Trump, have alleged misconduct in the Bureau and Justice Department handling of the FISA warrant. And this ongoing investigation will, uh, will continue. Well, the Democrats have raged against Barr for backing the claim that Trump's campaign uh, did, in fact, experience spying by the FBI. Now, he didn't designate if it was FBI, but said that he believes spying did occur uh, and um, that uh, the investigation would continue. Now, the hearing that was held earlier today was something of a spectacle. One can only hope that once the Mueller report is released, once this investigation moves forward, as we've discussed here before, was supposed to have been the case uh, through other mechanisms in the FBI, uh, one would hope for some real answers and let the chips fall where they may, but real answers to many of the questions that have conveniently been floated around now for more than two years. As I mentioned, the uh, attorney general is forming a team to look into counterintelligence investigation on the campaign in 2016. And he's assembled that team to investigate. Republicans uh, have called for a thorough investigation, and it appears that that will, in fact, be the case. And now to transition to something so entirely different, there's no way to really connect the two. The National School Lunch Program has changed dramatically since it started in 1946. It started out as a grant program to help poor students and those with special needs, and it's morphed into a massive entitlement, offering meals to 30 million students every year. I think you and I would probably all agree that if 30 million students need a a school lunch, we would support that. But this is equivalent to nearly 55% of all children enrolled in public and private schools. Do 55% need uh, that kind of program? The bigger the program got, the more wasteful it became. According to the Office of Management and Budget, 
It now classifies the school lunch program as a high error program due to large losses for incorrect payments every year, nearly $800 million in fiscal year 2018 alone. Well, in 2010, the Obama administration approved letting school districts offer free meals to all students in schools where 40 percent of the student body comes from low income families that qualify for public assistance, such as food stamps. No problem with those uh, low income families, uh, children getting the funds. This community eligibility provision is providing meals, breakfast, as well as lunch to kids from middle and upper income families. However, well, federal regulations adopted to implement the uh, changes to the lunch program stretch the eligibility criteria even further. Districts have been permitted to combine the percentages of eligible students across groups of schools so they can offer free meals to students in schools that don't meet that 40 percent threshold. For example, if only 20 percent of the student in school A are eligible for uh, free meals, but 61 percent of school B's students meet the criterion, well, the district can combine the numbers and provide free meals to all students in both schools, not what was intended. Well, that's problematic for taxpayers and those who believe free food should be reserved for students that truly need it. Well, President Trump's uh, 2020 budget proposal would put an end to uh, that practice of grouping schools together. The idea is to provide better targeting of free meal benefits to children in need of assistance, the original purpose of the federal school program. It would be a small but worthwhile improvement to a program that's been plagued by waste for years. The school lunch program has a habit of serving the wrong students, which is why it lands in the Office of Management and Budgets blacklist with lamentable regularity. As of 2016, the lunch program had an error of a rate rather of 16 percent, while the school breakfast component had an improper payment rate of 23 percent. The 2010 expansion of the taxpayer-funded meals only aggravated the problem because it ignores the errors by simply including more students, regardless of family income. Well, the program was already wasting food before taking uh, uh, middle and upper middle class beneficiaries, again, middle and upper middle class beneficiaries who had no need or appetite for the food on, uh, on offer. Adding students to the program doesn't address these issues of waste. Well, the rationale behind the expansion was that it would uh, give low income families access to school meals because they no longer have to apply for them. Yet other methods already in use work to... Uh, more easily identify eligible students. For example, over 90% of students from families participating in the food stamp program are automatically made eligible for free school meals. There's no need to give free meals to students who are not eligible in order to help those who are. Uh, In 2010, the uh, community eligibility provision runs contrary to the purpose of the school lunch program and should be eliminated entirely. Instead of watching taxpayer money get tossed into school trash cans, the kids weren't eating the food, by the way, that Michelle Obama's uh, standard still in place, lawmakers should work to reduce waste and reduce resources to the children in need. We'll see what happens, making sure that those who need it get it, those who don't, don't. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Quick break, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <laughs> 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with the CEO of First Image. Larry Gadbaugh will join me in studio. First Image, of course, oversees Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, and Reality Project. Some changes are coming to First Image. He'll explain why. And uh, what those changes are, he'll join us at 5 o'clock. We'll also talk with Adam Michelle, Senior Policy Analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. We'll talk about uh, how much Americans are paying in taxes. And was there a tax cut? A lot of people are scratching their heads, not entirely sure, because they didn't... uh 
didn't recognize it. Well, Facebook is under mounting scrutiny for its approach to moderating online speech. Lawmakers and the public have serious, uh, well, questions about the decisions Facebook chooses to make about the things you can say and the posts that you can see on its platform. Some of those questions will likely be asked by Senate Judiciary Committee when it holds a hearing on technology companies and free speech. So with this increased focus on Facebook's decision, the social media giant is taking a new approach. Last week, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, he called for the government to police your speech instead of having Facebook do it. He wants government around the world, governments plural, to adopt rules that would determine what types of speech are and are not allowed online. Was there, has the first, is that still a part of... Maybe I missed it. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately for his plan, government censorship isn't just a bad idea. In America, at least, it would be a violation of so-called uh, the said First Amendment. Now, Facebook may see this as a convenient way of passing the buck, or perhaps it wants to divert attention from calls to break up big tech. But none of that justifies pa- Facebook's decision to surrender the First Amendment rights as tribute. Well, uh, this is what will be uh, discussed during the hearing that's uh, taking place sometime this uh, this week. We'll see what happened. Well, there was an op-ed that ran, um, uh, and one Facebook official tried to walk back the proposal, saying that Zuckerberg only meant for foreign governments to regulate online speech. In the U.S., the official said Facebook would set... Uh, an internal oversight board that would have binding authority to make decisions about speech that is and is not allowed. Uh, This is cold comfort when it comes to online freedom. It shows that Facebook is perfectly willing to join arm in arm with federal governments to censor online speech since that pesky First Amendment applies only in the U.S. But we shouldn't go, um, uh, well, that to that extent. Well, Zuckerberg rejected the walk back in an interview later uh, in the week on ABC's George or with George Stephanopoulos. And in that interview, Zuckerberg issued a new and expanded call for the U.S. government itself to police online speech. Uh, It is time for our government to step in, Zuckerberg said, and regulate speech on divisive political issues. Now, you can translate that as anything you might disagree with, whether or not it's divisive in the um, generally understood use of the, uh, the term. He cited as an example such hot-button issues as immigration, but that's not the government's role. In fact, there's little more deeply rooted in the fabric of our country than the robust and free exchange of views on controversial issues, particularly political issues. We should all want to remain free from government regulation. We do, don't we? Well, for his part, Zuckerberg euphemistically described his position as a call for a more democratic process for regulating speech. But the entire purpose of the First Amendment is to insulate speech, particularly unpopular speech, from the democratic process. We don't want a majority of Americans or the government to decide what we may or may not say online. I see it coming, but... I wouldn't usher it in today. In the end, Facebook just doesn't get the First Amendment. And when a powerful corporation proposes censorship, um, that would violate our fundamental rights. It's important that we call it out. And uh, let's hope that that's what happens. Again, hearings of some sort expected before the week's end. Well, as I mentioned briefly, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears more likely than ever to be headed to a fifth term after the party that uh, of his top rival conceded defeat in the country's parliamentary elections. The blue and white party, headed by former Army Chief of Staff Benny Gantz, drew even uh, with Netanyahu's Likud party, but the incumbent prime minister is poised uh, to form a government with his larger block of allies. Gantz said his party founded a true alternative rule to Netanyahu, but it's number two figure. Uh, He told the newspapers that it did not win in this round. Netanyahu, meanwhile, says President Trump has called to congratulate him on the election 
uh, win from Air Force One. Well, his office issued a statement Wednesday saying Trump warmly congratulated Netanyahu, who thanked the uh, president for his great support for Israel, including the White House's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. The prime minister campaigned on his foreign policy victories and close relations with world leaders, uh, President Trump in particular. Well, Israel's president also said uh, today that his uh, talks with political parties are to begin next week in the run up to picking the leader he thinks has the best chance of forming a stable governing coalition. Uh, Reuven Rivlin added that uh, for the first time, his meetings with party leaders would be broadcast on live television in the name of transparency. And although the president acts largely in a ceremonial capacity, he is uh, charged with choosing a candidate to, uh, for prime minister after hearing recommendations from the heads of all factions, according to the Associated Press. Rivlin uh, will then task the, uh, uh, the leading candidate with forming a government within the next 42 days. But again, Benjamin Netanyahu appears to have won the Israeli um, prime minister election after opposition party leaders have conceded. Well, President Vladimir Putin uh, yesterday put forward an ambitious program to secure Russia's foothold in the Arctic, including efforts to build new ports and other infrastructure facilities and expand an icebreaker fleet. Speaking at the Arctic Forum in St. Petersburg, attended by leaders of Finland, Iceland, Norway and Sweden, President Putin said that Russia plans to dramatically increase cargo shipments across the Arctic Sea route. He said that the amount of cargo carried across the shipping lane is set to increase from 20 million metric tons last year to 80 million million, uh, metric tons in 2025. This is a realistic, well-calculated and concrete task, he said. We need to make the northern sea route safe and commercially feasible. He noted that Russia, the only nation with a nuclear icebreaker fleet, is moving to expand it. Russia currently has four nuclear icebreakers, and Putin said that three new such ships are currently under construction. By 2035, Russia stands to have a fleet of 13 heavy icebreakers, including nine nuclear-powered vessels, he said. The Russian leader said that Russia plans to expand the ports on both sides of the Arctic shipping route um, and invited foreign companies to invest in the reconstruction project. Other ports and infrastructure facilities along that route will also be upgraded and expanded, he said. Well, Russia, the U.S., Canada, Denmark and Norway have all been trying to assert jurisdiction over parts of the Arctic as shrinking polarized creates new opportunities for resource exploration and new shipping lanes. Russia uh, declaring that it's ahead of the pack. Speaking at the forum, Norwegian President Minister Erna Solberg emphasized the need to respect international law and noted that the Arctic Council provides a key arena for that dialogue, signaling that she wasn't necessarily confident that Russia intended to do the same. Now and then I hear the Arctic described as a geopolitical hotspot, she said. This is not how we see it. We know the Arctic as a region of peace and stability. She noted that this should not be taken for granted, adding that it is the result of political decisions and practical cooperation between the Arctic states. Respect for international law and regional cooperation are keys to ensuring peace and stability across borders, she said. She and other leaders who spoke at the forum underlined the need for all countries in the Arctic region to focus on areas of mutual interest despite differences. Well, it may have seemed like a good idea at the time, but India's destruction of one of its orbiting satellites in a recent missile test has inadvertently put those aboard the International Space Station in increased danger, according to NASA. Well, speaking at a live-streamed event on Monday, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine 
described India's anti-satellite missile test on the 27th of March as not compatible with the future of human spaceflight, adding it's unacceptable and NASA needs to be very clear about what its impact to us is. End quote. And while critics fear that the long-term consequences of this test could be an arms race in space, more immediate fears center on the potential damage that could be caused by the hundreds of new satellite fragments joined already uh, enormous amount of so-called space debris flying around the Earth. Well, such debris, which is mostly made up of retired satellites, old equipment and discarded rocket parts, and I would imagine unmatched socks, poses a collision risk to the ISS, that's the International Space Station, and its crew, as well as the myriad of functioning satellites currently orbiting the Earth. Well, India's Ministry of External Affairs insisted its test was safe as it was carrying out in the lower atmosphere to ensure that any debris resulted from the explosion would decay and fall back to the Earth within weeks. But speaking on Monday, Bridenstine said NASA had identified 400 pieces of orbital debris from the test, with at least 24 of them, each one larger than 10 centimeters, uh, having done uh, above a, the apogee of the um, International Space Station, something he described as a terrible, terrible thing, which put the safety of the uh, International Space Station at risk. He confirmed, however, that because the test was carried out low enough in Earth orbit, the fragments and therefore the risk would dissipate over time. Now, whether it's as short a time as the um, Indian government suggested was not addressed. We're charged with enabling more activities in space than we've ever seen before for the purpose of benefiting the human condition, he told his audience on Monday, but said the anti-satellite missile tests place such endeavors at risk. So the competition for space and what can and cannot be done enabling and uh, endangering others who are already present there has begun. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Larry Gadbaugh, up right after news and traffic at the top of the hour. Well, the Oregon Senate voted on Tuesday to join a movement designed to award the presidency to the winner of the popular vote. The 17 to 12 vote on Senate Bill 870 came after an hour-long debate. Well, if the bill is approved by the Oregon House and signed into law, Oregon would be would join rather 14 other states in the District of Columbia in the National Popular Vote Compact. The idea behind the compact is that state lawmakers would award their state electoral college votes to the presidential candidate who receives the most uh, votes nationwide. Well, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand became the latest public a figure to jump on board the uh, anti-electoral college bandwagon um, this past week. Gillibrand, a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, opined that our democracy, constitutional republic actually, is built on the principle of one person, one vote. It can't function unless we restore that principle. It's time to abolish the electoral college, end quote. Of course, what Oregon is uh, proposing to do and what others before it, the 14 others, is not abolishing the electoral college, but uh, rendering it impotent to accomplish what its constitutional function requires. Well, it appears that Gillibrand, switching back to Washington, needs to brush up on her U.S. civics knowledge, and perhaps we do as well. The fact of the matter is the United States is not nor ever uh, was a democracy. It's a republic. In truth, Democrat leaders know this, but their instinct is to seek to change the rules when they don't win rather than change themselves. And they cynically exploit ignorance among their con- constituents to achieve their ends. Well, abolishing the Electoral College would require a constitutional amendment. And to their credit, there has been uh, one initiative introduced in both the House and the Senate 
uh, the U.S. Senate. And in lieu of that, 12 blue states have collided. That number is up to 14 now. Oregon contemplating the idea to send their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote rather than the winner of popular vote within their individual state. Now, the national popular vote interstate compact is essentially designed as a means to get around the Democrats' objection to federalism. Fortunately, there are some folks making an effort to educate Americans to the wisdom and benefits of the Electoral College. You might hear them speaking very softly off in the distance without much real coverage. Save Our States is one such project. Trent England, executive vice president of the Oakland Council of Public Affairs and director of... um, uh, this uh, effort, this pro-electoral college, explain when we've been able to sit down with Republicans and Democrats and explain how the electoral college really benefits the country and the political system. Usually uh, it passes um, uh, with only Democratic support and bipartisan opposition. The Daily Wire's Josh Hammer writes that England and its uh, his OCPA colleagues at Save Our States frequently travel to state legislatures to meet with lawmakers considering Uh, This popular vote initiative, he educates lawmakers uh, both about the highly partisan money backing of the uh, effort, as well as the uh, founding era political theory undergirding the Electoral College. The great irony here is that those who love to tout their support for diversity are constantly working to eradicate it as a means of diversity, uh, of diversity of ideas and viewpoints. And I only hope that the state of Oregon does not, although I'm certain it will, follow suit and this workaround from the Electoral College, particularly when so few appreciate its original intent. Well, Oregonians are moving closer to avoiding the annual spring forward and fall back. As you know, last week, the Senate passed Senate Bill 320, which would establish year-round daylight saving time. Well, the proposal, which has broad support from both Republicans and Democrats, bipartisanship at its finest, now heads the or- to the Oregon House. Well, across the country, standard time is recognized from early November through mid-March, when the switch to daylight saving time provides eight months of later sunrises and sunsets. Well, sticking with daylight saving time would give Oregonians an extra hour of light in their winter evenings. But as critics point out, ignoring the move back to standard time means there'll be some pretty dark mornings through the winter. Sunrise on December 21st, for instance, would be at uh, 8.48 a.m. Sunrise. Well, what will permanent daylight saving time look like if Oregonians are thrust into it? Well, the uh, um, based on time data in uh, in Portland in 2018 from the U.S. Naval Observancy, um, it's going to be a pretty dark time in the winter and not quite as uh, eventful in light during the summer. Uh, what will standard time go away immediately? Well, no, as we mentioned here before, it requires lawmakers in Washington to approve such a move. Even if we um, find the Oregon House agrees on a plan and Governor uh, Kate Brown signs off on the bill, it only takes effect if both California and Washington make the same decision. Uh, and our neighboring states are well on their way. California voters approved a daylight saving time measure last November. Washington lawmakers already passed a bill that will put the issue on the November ballot in 2020. I'm not sure Oregonians are given the same privilege of deciding for themselves. In all three states, um, if they agree to permanent daylight saving time, the region would still need to secure congressional approval. Um, would all of Oregon switch over? That's another question. And how difficult would this make it? Uh, all the state is in the Pacific time zone except for Malheur County, which is on mountain time. If the bill takes effect, Malheur County 
would stay on the same clock as nearby Boise, continuing the annual switches between daylight and standard time. That could be confusing. And have other states made the change? Well, the answer, quite frankly, is yes. Florida became the first state to approve permanent daylight saving time and is awaiting congressional approval. Hawaii, the northern uh, Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, as well as Arizona, except the Navajo Nation, stay on standard time year-round. Well, President uh, Trump supports the move. Several key members of Congress, including Senator Ron Wyden, favor year-round daylight saving time. Oregon Governor Kate Brown loves the idea. House Speaker Tina Kotek has said that she um, uh, likes the idea, but that she'd rather remain on standard time year-round. And who are the critics in this effort? Opponents uh, cite several issues. Some worry about safety risks for kids who might have to walk to school in the dark. Others downplay arguments that change is necessary uh, to tackle climate change. They point to the U.S. Department of Energy study from 2008 that reported the uh, country uses 0.5% less energy for every additional day of daylight saving time. The report also showed southern states didn't uh, recoup as much energy savings, perhaps because they needed more air conditioning. Senator Elizabeth Steinard Hayward from Beaverton and others worry about unintended consequences. She's Jewish, said daylight saving uh, savings 9 a.m. winter sunrises would significantly impede the ability of people to participate in group prayer, make it to work on time. She'd prefer to stay on standard time year round as well. So we'll see what actually happens. By the way, um, daylight saving time was introduced in 1918. Some states opted uh, in over the next 50 years while others stuck to standard. In 1966, Congress enabled daylight uh, time nationwide for about six months out of the year. The daylight saving period grew over the years and in 27, uh, 2007, rather, it was set for mid-March to early November. So we'll see what happens and how we'll relate to the rest of the country as a consequence. Well, the fast food chain Chick-fil-A is wanted on suspicion of aiding and abetting Christian organizations. Rich Lowry uh, points out that uh, the home of the original chicken sandwich was banned from its second airport in two weeks for the offense of contributing to Christian groups deemed anti-gay by its critics. The San Antonio City Council voted to exclude the restaurant from its airport in Buffalo, New York, soon followed suit, denying travelers the option of juicy chicken sandwiches and waffle fries in the cause of social justice. Again, quoting from Rich Lowry, this is about punishing the Georgia-based company for the faith of its leadership. The official ban are, uh, bans rather, are anti-Christian, unconstitutional, and a harbinger of a larger effort to hunt down and punish any organization that has um, uncongenial views on sexual morality. In San Antonio, the leader of the anti-Chick-fil-A effort, City Councilman Roberto Trevino, explained that everyone has a place here and everyone should feel welcome when they walk through our airport. The irony of discriminating against Chick-fil-A in order to discriminate, or rather to demonstrate the city's famous openness, was, of course, lost on him. And by the way, Chick-fil-A does not have a a uh, distinction in terms of hiring and who they serve. They, uh, the owners have a personal opinion that is based on their faith, but it is not reflected in any way in any of their practices in terms of their employees or their guests. Well, as for everyone feeling welcome, it's not as though Chip Filet refuses to serve or hire anyone. It didn't become the fastest growing restaurant chain in America projected to take third place in sales after McDonald's and Starbucks by putting obstacles between hungry patrons and its sandwiches, except for on Sundays when it's closed. The hostility, um, Lowry goes on to write to Chick-fil-A, uh, stems from a controversy back in 2012 when its CEO, Dan Cathy, 
made statements opposing same-sex marriage, and the foundation established by the company's founder contributed to politically engaged social conservative groups. There was nothing wrong with this, but since most profit-seeking enterprises don't like controversy, Kathy said the company would back off the gay marriage debate and focus on chicken. It has, but its critics still detect a lingering stench of Christianity. Well, the outfit, uh, left-wing Think Progress, issued a report cited widely in the press and among Chick-fil-A opponents accusing the company's foundation of anti-gay giving. So if you support traditional values, it's tantamount to anti-gay giving, by which it means it donated to the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and a small Christian home for troubled young men in Vidalia, Georgia. Needless to say, a lot of other people are guilty of the same offense, given that the Salvation Army raises about $2 billion a year. To consider all that the Salvation Army does, it's thrift shop, aid for the homeless, disaster relief, anti-trafficking program, Christmas gifts to needy children, and much, much more, and reduce the organization to an allegedly anti-LGBT group is perverse. For its part, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes stands accused of seeking to spread an anti-LGBTQ message to college athletes. It's true the FCA asks its leaders to forswear homosexual acts, but it also wants them to pledge not to engage in heterosexual acts outside of marriage and, for that matter, refuse to use drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. Well, according to Chick-fil-A, its donation to FCA supported sports camps and school programs for inner city schools. Not exactly controversial. And its gifts to the Salvation Army went to youth camps and Christmas presents for thousands of Atlanta kids. Any public official joining the punitive campaign against Chick-fil-A needs to needs a remedial lesson in the Constitution, which forbids discrimination against private companies on the basis of political or religious viewpoint. It is the enemies of Chick-fil-A who are intolerant and out of the mainstream. They desperately need to abandon their tawdry McCarthyite crusade and eat more chicken. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, I am delighted to have with me in studio Larry Gadbaugh, who is the CEO of First Image, and that includes ministries like the Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, and the Reality Project. And Larry, I'm responding to an email that I received, actually a newsletter, an e-newsletter that I received regarding some changes at First Image, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about them. Uh, And I, I also wanted to highlight the importance of how you and the organization make decisions about the future. I mean, it would be easy to say, this is how we've done it. This has worked. This is how we're going to always do it without um, questioning, reevaluating, determining what's in, in the best interest of all concern moving forward. And that's, that seems to be what you've done here. Four changes. Why? Well, you know, in a, in a ministry that seeks to minister in a culture that is so radically changing so quickly. It's a challenge for us to be faithful to um, the things that don't change, to the person that doesn't change, Mm -hmm. our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be faithful. And that's really has become uh, kind of the key question for me in, in my calling, in our calling, and that is, what does faithfulness look like in this season? And it always means being true to the Scriptures, being true to the Lord Jesus as he expresses himself in the Scriptures. But it also means in loving our neighbors. And when, and when the situation and the challenges and the, the threats to our neighbors change, then we have the freedom and, and, the, and the confidence to be able to make uh, uh, adaptations mm-hmm. 
in strategy and in outreach. And so that's what led us to do that. So over the last couple of years, really, our executive team um, has monthly spent a good part of a day on a monthly basis seeking the Lord, looking at the trends that we've seen and that are going on both for our ministry in the culture, in the church, and what we hear and see daily in those that we serve that come into our centers and that we talk to in the schools. And, and as we have heard and seen those, then we have uh, put forth these changes. They're kind of incremental changes, but mm-hmm. they're significant changes uh, or that we will, uh, Lord willing, uh, implement over the next two years. Now, uh, we're going to talk about what those specifics are in just a moment, but one of the things I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to is when you hear a nonprofit make reference to change, there's almost a panic that sets in, okay, what's going on? What's behind that? What What's wrong that requires these kinds of changes? In the newsletter, I appreciated the way you put it, that I want to reiterate, and this is uh, you writing, that this is a strategic, proactive decision, not a response to financial challenges. We could continue to operate our Clackamas Center as we have been, but we believe that this decision represents the best way for us to serve our clients going forward. This is not a, a panic decision. It's not a response to uh, a decline in resource. That's right. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, over the 18 years that I've served with uh, First Image, we have had to make decisions sometimes on a financial basis, you know, when the economy has really tanked and all that. But I, I emphasize that this is not that decision. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it panic to, you know, <laughs> to work through a decision over two year period. And we've processed through our board. We have a phenomenal uh, governing board. Uh, that oversees us, and they have affirmed all these decisions, and then through our executive staff, and we've also communicated throughout all of our uh, all of our staff, and uh, and I've also shared it with some of our major partners, and all of them have said, you know what, we just affirmed this mm-hmm. this is wise, and so we've sought it through a long process. Well, let's begin with uh, one of the first decisions, and that is to awaken more local churches. I know that the uh, first image and the uh, resulting ministries have connected with the church over the years Uh, in awakening more local churches. Explain why that is a priority at this time. It's a priority because really the PRC, the pregnancy resource movement, especially, you know, in, in our community really arose out of the passion of the local church that love our neighbors who are being threatened and harmed by sexual brokenness and abortion. And so it's only really in keeping with that, uh, that momentum that we've always had. And uh, we have seen in, I would say, over the last five to 10 years, a declining or a more of an, a, a growing ambivalence hmm. towards the mission. Not, not a stepping back from it, but just more of an ambivalence because the culture and, and the, uh, the polarization of the culture has affected the church. And so generationally and uh, demographically, there there's more ambivalence around the issue of the sanctity of human life because, and and I would say that because the primary response has been a political response, which thank God for those who are doing that with integrity uh, in terms of addressing the issue of abortion uh, at the political and, and uh, public policy level. But um, it's become so politicized and so polarized that uh, it seems like more Christians uh, and in the churches are becoming more ambivalent about how to engage with it. 
And so I really believe that one of the reasons that, or what part of our stewardship is to serve the church and to serve the Christian community, to give them a model and an outlet for our compassion, Mm -hmm. to work out our conviction that every person conceived in the womb is created in the image of God and is our neighbor and God calls us to love them. And so how to work that out uh, even beyond, you know, political discussion and political uh, things. And so we can do that in the centers. And so we're thankful that uh, we're called to do that with the churches. Now, I think it's important, in addition to the work of the Pregnancy Resource Centers, to emphasize the two other programs that are also associated with First Image that I think affirm that very thing. I love the heart program, which reaches into the hearts of those who have had an abortion or have been instrumental in an abortion decision, mm-hmm. and to bring them from that that um, place of shame to one in which you come to recognize the great uh, grace and love and mercy of God that is lavished on all of those who come to him. Uh, this, too, I think, is a reflection of the church and is a, a reflection of the kind of uh, ministry that we want to have in our community. It really is. And if the if the typical statistics that one out of three women in the United States have had at least one abortion um, is anywhere near accurate, even if it's one out of four or one out of five, mm-hmm. that means that our churches, as well as our community, are filled with thousands and thousands of women who are still living with that secret. And, uh, and we just know from the interaction of thousands and thousands of women that to hold that or to carry that secret without the hope of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with themselves and and in their relationships, that it has deep scarring impact upon them. And they could be set free by that because the love and the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and and the hope of the gospel goes all the way back to that dark corner of the closet of their souls. And so uh, to see them set free, to offer that hope is just uh, a privilege for us to Restoration, transformation. Oh, yes. Uh, that's the the hope of the gospel, and that certainly is an extension of the church. The other program is the Reality Project, and this really um, is an opportunity to speak to young people before some of the challenges that you see in the pregnancy resource centers uh, become an issue. Uh, and that's, again, uh, uh, an aspect of the work of First Image that I think all of us can support. It really is, and and it's a great privilege. We are invited in to public high schools, about 25 schools in, in Tri-County, Portland, and uh, we are invited in, and we get to uh, interact with these students um, about the nature of love, the nature of relationships. And we find, and, and it's so true in, in everything that we do across our programs, is that it's awakening this this longing that's really hardwired into our souls because we're made in the image of God. We long for intimacy. We long for community, and and to, and they just sense that that uh, the primary story, the primary voices that were being given by the dominant culture are not satisfying us, mm-hmm. and uh, that God has a better design. And so when we plant that seed of hope. Uh, through a very interactive, uh, fun way in the classroom, we find these students being very responsive. Well, again, these are all part of the ministry of First Image, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, the Reality Project. Now, how can churches engage and how do they engage with the work of First Image? Well, uh, both from the grassroots as well as uh, through the leadership. Uh, we've always engaged with the uh, the churches um, 
because our, our very – the makeup of those who serve in our centers, for example, are volunteers. And so we provide training for them. We also uh, offer to uh, serve in the churches, to speak in the churches. They can also be involved in any of our events, which are educational, transformational, uh, like the Steps for Life that's coming up in May. And so they engage in that way. Uh, our volunteers – come in and they're trained as peer counselors, they're trained as receptionists, they're trained as auxiliary volunteers to to coordinate uh, the donations of baby clothes and maternity clothes and diapers and, and layettes and so forth. And so there's a number of ways that churches have been involved. We're talking about some changes that are coming to First Image, and uh, these are opportunities for us to prayerfully consider how we should respond as people who benefit in our communities from the ongoing work. Now, we need to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Larry Gadbaugh, who is CEO of First Image. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Larry Gadbaugh, CEO of First Image. That includes the ministry of uh, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, and Reality Project. Now, the second change that you outline here is one uh, that's very significant, and that is to increase the digital outreach of the uh, First Image to clients. Uh, Explain what that means and why that's important at this time. Well, for years, the primary way that um, that clients would find us, those facing unsupported pregnancy, was, uh, you know, through the phone book or, or through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everyone now, it's just common knowledge that everyone basically lives on their screens. They live on their, on their phones. And so uh, we, we know that we need to triple our digital marketing to clients so that they know we're out there, we, they, so that they know that we are a resource for them if they're facing an unsupported pregnancy. Now, my guess is any 16-year-old on any street in Portland or Beaverton is going to know precisely what that means and how that works. I, on the other hand, wonder now, how do you, how do, you do that? Do you get the phone to call them on your behalf? So for those of us who are perhaps a little less savvy than the, the clients, the potential clients that you're talking about, Give us an example of how that works. Well, my millennial staff could answer this even better <laughs> than I can, or maybe my grandson. But <laughs> but basically, if you go onto a search engine like Google mm-hmm. and you type in, you know, pregnancy or uh, abortion services or, um, you know, uh, you know anything, a uh, keyword like that, and then what pops up is uh, our links to websites – links to resources, just like if you were looking for any other mm-hmm. services. And so I think most of us know how to do that. And so by um, paying for advertising, for paying for, um, uh, you know, pay-per-click on those uh, search engines, then you can move your uh, link up up the line so that it shows up uh, sooner when you when you do your search. Yeah. I mean, visibility is everything yeah. when you're, uh, when you're uh, looking for something, uh, when it pops up on your screen, you're not likely to scroll for 15 pages looking That's for something. Right. What comes up first? And you can deter, you can help determine how that happens. That's yeah. going to have the, uh, the greatest opportunity for the attention required for them to then click on it and move forward. Absolutely. So the, the more that you uh, strategically uh, invest in that client advertising, then the higher visibility we get. And then we can also track just how effective 
um, you know, the key words are that we choose and so forth. And so every month we can know and make adjustments in that advertising. So it's a, it's, it's just almost a no-brainer that, that we need to invest in that. Incredible. Well, it's like the yellow pages of, of old. In fact, yes. I, I had yellow pages delivered to my home this last week. I thought, yeah. what is this? How do you use? It's like I'm AAA medical services. <laughs> you, you want to be right at the top when someone is looking. Um, that's that's how this whole thing works. Now, the other uh, another of the changes that you uh, wrote about was providing more comprehensive services um, in line with the mission. Uh, and this is an interesting um, element as well. You're launching a pilot uh, called STI. Explain what that is, and it, I think it will be obvious why it's uh, important. Yes, STI testing is uh, sexually transmitted infection testing, and the the uh, the demographic of those that we serve, uh, especially fifteen to thirty four, uh, is highly at risk for sexually transmitted diseases, sexually transmitted infections. And so we we want to extend our care. We want to go beyond just the the pregnancy decision itself, which is crucial of course. But one of the one of the in, some of the input that we've received from our clients, those that we do serve, mm-hmm. is that they're looking for more services. They and they expect more services, you know, from because the healthcare community uh, has changed so drastically in the last eight to ten years, and so this is this is one service that is has become not uncommon in the pregnancy resource center uh, movement nationally, and so we have started we've already started a pilot at our southeast center on southeast fifty second and Powell, and so they can make uh, those that come in uh, asking for pregnancy tests or ultrasounds. We offer them also this STI testing. And uh, and so we have trained nurses who are prepared to do that, and then uh, they can uh, and then they can get the results of that, and we can give them resources beyond that, uh, depending upon the results. Now, the fourth change um, that sort of made my heart a little bit sad was you're consolidating the centers, and that means one of the centers at Clackamas uh, will no longer function as a pregnancy resource center in that community. Now, explain um, why that's the case and what that will mean for the remaining centers. Well, all of our centers are – we have them by a lease. Uh, we don't own any of them. And uh, every time that a lease contract comes up, we always evaluate, you, yeah. know, how, um, you know, how many clients are we seeing and how does the, the, the rate of, uh, of the lease, you know, the payment of the lease, how does that relate to um, – how effective that center is being. We've moved centers at different times as we've evaluated that to be in the best locations possible. It used to be, the strategy used to be that uh, we can reach more people if you have more centers, more locations. Well, again, going back to the fact that everybody lives on their screen, they Mm -hmm. live digitally, that um, we're not limited to being accessible to the clients only by multiple locations. And so um, as we looked at the Clackamas Center, it's, it's our highest lease. It, uh, it sees our fewest clients. And, uh, and the demographics of the area are not our target. Those that, we are see- those that we know are the most susceptible and the most needy of our services. And so in adding those things up, so over a year ago, as we looked at that, we either need to re-sign the lease or else we need to make this strategic move. So that was part of the discussion as we were discussing this this overall uh, strategy of 
uh, how is God leading us forward to reach out? It doesn't mean that we won't open up another center sometime in the future, but right now we're going to reallocate those resources um, to things like digital advertising, uh, enhancing uh, some of the services in, mm-hmm. in the remaining three centers and so forth. So that was the that was the process that we went through. And again, this is a strategic, proactive decision, not a response to financial challenges. And I think that's important to remember yeah. as well. One of the things that I have appreciated as I've observed the work of the Pregnancy Resource Centers and now First Image and the uh, the umbrella organization is that it has always been uh, decisions have always been prayerfully made. They've always been made strategically so that the the uh, ministry hasn't stagnated. Uh, you all have been aware of your surroundings and changes in the culture uh, and made decisions that are useful and, and help the, uh, the ministry to thrive. And so I appreciate that. And for being very, um, very clear about why we're doing this and what's happening. I remember when the change, uh, the name change came, uh, Pregnancy Resource Centers from Crisis Pregnancy Centers. I mean, that was kind of a shock to my system. It was, you know, it, it uh, fell trippingly off the tongue. And now suddenly the name has changed. But then I understood, understood why that change was being made. So I have appreciated uh, the organization over the many years that I've been uh, following. And uh, this is just another example of how you are carefully um, uh, managing the affairs of, of uh, uh, pregnancy resource centers and uh, first image and representing the interests of those of us who support and um, and love this ministry. <laughs> Just put it that way. Now, you ended with uh, some things that we can pray about, and that's always important because I want to be proactive in that way. As you all are praying about the course that should uh, be taken moving forward, it's important for those of us who support First Image to know how we can pray. And so I'll put that question to you. How can we come alongside and pray? And then I want to ask you some practical questions about some other ways we can come alongside. Sure. Well, you can pray uh, for God's continuing wisdom and diligence, because we're stewards. All of us uh, are stewards of uh, the hope of Jesus Christ. And so as we serve in this arena, uh, you know, where our neighbors are being impacted by sexual brokenness and abortion, our stewardship is crucial. And it's, you know, it it's, has a lot of opposition and a lot of, we're often misrepresented. So mm-hmm. pray for us that we would be consistent in our message, in our in our strategy, in our in our hearts and attitudes, uh, in responding to those things, as well as serving our our, uh, our clients, and uh, and also pray that the Lord would send more partners to us, those who would support us. That uh, we have a uh, we have uh, a, a project to deepen our relationship with churches, so that we can serve the church and serve with the church uh, more effectively. So pray for uh, our partnerships to grow with more churches and the churches that we have in the city. Uh, you could also uh, consider, well, going to our website, first-image.org, and there's opportunities for volunteering. We need more volunteers in our centers, and you'll be equipped and trained on how to, uh, uh, how to talk with and help uh, women who come in to, to uh, facing an unplanned pregnancy and unsupported pregnancy. And so we need more volunteers in that way as well. I know you have uh, Steps for Life coming up. That's May 18th. That's another opportunity to come alongside with funding. It's important to note that First Image does not receive any public funds. This is an expression of the body of Christ supporting our community and those who have been impacted by sexual brokenness. Steps for Life is a major fundraising event for uh, first image. It is, and it's so much fun. We moved it to Blue Lake Park out in Troutdale 
uh, last year, and uh, we also added a run, uh, a 5K run. And so you can walk or you can run, raise um, raise pledges for uh, doing the run and the walk. It's a family event. We've got great music and, and food and uh, and pray for sunshine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, that again, you can find out more about that at first-image.org, and I would encourage you to do that. Well, Larry, I so appreciate your uh, taking the time to be with us today and for your leadership over this strategic ministry in our community. It is an expression of the love of Christ that's extended uh, out into our neighborhoods and, and uh, families and so on. So I am so grateful for you and the volunteers and staff that um, make up this this great work. So thank you. Thank you, Georgine. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Adam Michelle. He's Senior Policy Analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. We're going to talk about how much Americans are actually paying in taxes, not what we think we're paying, but what we're actually paying. And was there a tax cut? Maybe you haven't felt it, but we'll talk about whether or not you got one. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, my next guest, writing for The Daily Signal, points out that most Americans got a tax cut last year. And I'm going to pause because you're thinking, huh? I couldn't tell. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise, he writes, given the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. A never-ending deluge of misleading or inaccurate reporting, however, on the issue has made it, well, challenging for us to recognize what that actually meant. Well, last year, the Heritage Foundation studied how the tax cuts would affect Americans in every congressional district across the country, and they found that each of the 435 districts got a tax cut and that the average American household paid about $1,400 less in taxes as a result in in 2018. Well, here to talk with us about that is Adam Michelle. He is a senior policy analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. What's the truth about how much Americans are paying in taxes? Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I tell you, there is a lot of confusion about uh, whether or not individual families or individuals enjoyed a tax cut. And I think you're absolutely right that there has been a never-ending deluge of misleading or inaccurate information uh, reporting on the issue. So tell us what uh, what that tax cut actually uh, meant in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Yeah, as you as you point out, most Americans are under the impression that they didn't get a tax cut. I think recently I saw some polling where it's one in six people think mm-hmm. that that they that only one in six people think that they actually got a tax cut from from this bill, and and that's just simply inaccurate. We've uh, both us, our, the Heritage Foundation and other even left leaning organizations have looked at this, and almost everyone says that at least one in nine Americans got a tax cut because there were changes that lowered tax rates across the board for everyone. There were changes that increased the the standard deduction, doubling it uh, for individuals and married filers. There was a doubling of the child tax credit. Sort of go down the list, and almost all of the changes were uh, to benefit taxpayers. Now, it's one thing for the media to uh, provide inaccurate reporting or misleading reporting. But one would think that if there's a tax cut, we would have been made aware just by virtue of how much we're bringing home each month. Are we just not paying attention or how is it that there's so much confusion? So I think a lot of the confusion is rooted in how Americans actually go about paying our taxes. 
most people, their one interaction with the government is uh, tax day coming up uh, on Monday, April 15th, when you sort of reconcile how much money uh, you still owe the government or the government owes you. But that's really not when you're paying your taxes. You pay your taxes throughout the, throughout the year. Each paycheck, your employer actually withholds money from your paycheck and sends it to Washington. And so it's that process of sort of behind the curtain, taxes are slowly dribbling out of each paycheck that, uh, that sort of obscures both when we get tax cuts and when, governments, when the government increases our taxes. It, just, it really truncates the American voters' relationship with Washington when it comes to taxes, and that's where a lot of this confusion stems from. Well, you uh, in the uh, column that I'm talking about that appeared in the Daily Signal, I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page for people to check that out because you give uh, taxpayers an opportunity to see uh, what happened in their particular area. And that, I think, is very helpful in recognizing um, all of this. But one of the points that you made is that we benefit not only from lower taxes, but we also benefit from higher wages that are generated by a faster growing economy. That, that's exactly right. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act didn't just cut taxes for for uh, individuals on your income. They also cut taxes uh, for for businesses uh, across across the United States. And what that does is it allows those businesses to plow that money into new investments, into expanding their, their footprint, into hiring more people, into raising wages. And we've actually seen that over the last year or so. Uh, wage growth has picked up faster than it has in the last 10 years. Employment is low. Jobs keep being added. And so we, we estimated what does this look like over the next 10 years for typical Americans in every single congressional district. And the first thing we found is that every the average taxpayers in every congressional district benefit. But at, at the sort of aggregate national level, uh, a, a typical American taxpayer can uh, expect to benefit from $26,000 of additional take-home pay over the next 10 years. For a family of four, that's close to $45,000. That's their tax cut plus the larger incomes you can expect because the economy is doing so much better. Now, again, there was a graphic that was part of your column um, in which you had an individual and then a family and with an annual income, for example, one with $50,000, Sofia Lopez, uh, with an annual income of $50,000. She's a teacher. She's uh, not a homeowner or a business owner, but you you put uh, the amount uh, Sofia would have paid in 2017, in 2018, and then the savings enjoyed this year. What did you find on average, and this is generalizing somewhat, of uh, individual taxpayers' um, savings and uh, families' uh, annual income, or I should say annual tax savings? On average, across the whole United States, we found that, uh, that, that folks will on average save uh, in 2018, so last year, the taxes you're filing right now. And for a family of four, a mom, a dad, and two kids, that that savings looks like $2,900, just shy of $3,000 of, um, of in lower taxes, thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That changes by congressional district. You, we have those numbers um, at uh, taxesandjobs.com, uh, where you can find your state and your congressional district and look like look what the average is, sort of closer to home. You conclude your uh, column with a brief summary of the major reforms for individual taxpayers in 2018. Can you review them so that we are uh, either learning for the first time or reminded what this um, tax cut included? Yeah, it's been a while since, uh, since the law was passed, and so a lot of people have forgotten that, that there's a lot of big changes that went on. On the individual side, 
Uh, folks can expect lower tax rates across the board. Uh, the top tax rate went, came down from about 40 to 37, but the 25% uh, bracket came down to 22%. So almost everyone got a tax cut in there just through lower tax rates. The standard deduction, which is basically the 0% bracket, how much money do you not have to pay any taxes on, doubled uh, from up to $12,000 and $24,000, respectively, for single and married filers. As I said before, the child tax credit doubled from $1,000 to $2,000 for each child. Uh, and I think the piece that has the most in disinformation around it is the state and local tax deduction was capped. And this has been demagogued as simply just a, a, a tax hit for on, uh, on, on uh, the rich sort of coastal states. And, and that's just simply not the case. Most of that cap is compensated through changes in the alternative minimum tax, through those lower tax rates and the bigger standard deduction. Uh, but this is ultimately a good change so that uh, federal taxpayers around the country are no longer subsidizing uh, the, the, the high tax rates that those in California and New York and Connecticut um, uh, are currently being charged. Well, this, I think, is very useful in helping us to understand what has happened despite what we're hearing. And again, I, I put a link uh, to the uh, column on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so our listeners can check that out. And then uh, also uh, take the, uh, uh, the tangible results from uh, the Heritage Foundation's work and determine what in their own congressional district uh, folks are paying in taxes. Adam Michelle, I always appreciate your contribution and thank you for talking with us today. Of course. Thanks for having me back on. Appreciate it very much. Again, Adam Michelle is Senior Policy Analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget uh, with the truth about how much Americans are paying in taxes. I think I mentioned a couple of days ago that uh, what we owe this year will be much higher than we've ever owed. I'm not quite sure why that's the case and we aren't quite finished with some of the deductions, so it might... Uh, kind of balance out. But uh, it has been a challenge uh, in that, as he mentioned a moment ago, there have been surveys indicating that most people don't think they got a tax cut at all. And part of that is the way it's done. But this uh, column not only helps you um, uh, figure out uh, or understand what was done, but to figure out how much you and others in our community uh, enjoyed in terms of tax cuts as well. So check that out again on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. Well, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. We'll also let you know what Alice Lin, who is the daughter of the Chinese, um, of the pastor who's a U.S. national, but of Chinese descent, who's been held by China for quite some time. He's a pastor and he's being held for his faith. We'll bring you the latest right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday, or actually, I think it may have been Monday, Alice Lynn appeared on Washington Watch with Tony Perkins. It's a national radio show that airs on more than 240 stations all across the, the, uh, the country. Well, on the program, uh, Ms. Lynn, she spoke out publicly for the first time about her father, Pastor David Lynn. Now, the name may be somewhat familiar to you, but it hasn't been mentioned for some time, at least not in the uh, in the press or the media. He was imprisoned in China for his faith more than a decade ago. Well, we've been asked as believers to sign a prayer pledge in support of Pastor Lynn by the Family Research Council. Well, his uh, his daughter, Alice, explained that, and I'm quoting, my father, Pastor David Lin, is a U.S. citizen. He's been imprisoned for his faith. She went on to say he was in China because he has a huge burden for the unchurched in China. He had a vision to build a church and a Christian training center. 
In 2006, he applied for a license for his ministry with the Chinese government. And it was a few months after that that he placed uh, he was placed under house arrest and eventually falsely charged and convicted. Now, he had gone through legal channels requesting a license to do the ministry that he had come to the country to do with the Chinese government. Um, But a few months after that, as I mentioned, he was placed under house arrest and eventually charged and convicted falsely. Well, while my father, she goes on to say, uh, has seen the prison as his mission field these last 10 years, something has changed. In the last few months, he has been reaching out to us with increasing frequency, which is very unusual. And he's had this anxiousness, this urgency in his voice. It's the first time he's ever asked us to reach out for help. Things are changing now. It's time to bring him back home, she concluded. Now, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins and host of the program uh, remarked that Pastor Lynn actually was embracing this call to a prison, to ministry. Uh, he had the ability to minister to people from over 30 nations within that prison, but something changed. Things have really gotten bad. We're seeing it uh, outside the prison as well. I can only imagine what's going on inside the prison system in China. Uh, Tony Perkins went on to say, um, you can hear the full interview, and I, I think I can uh, put a link on our webpage to allow you to do that. But in any event, you can also commit to pray for Pastor Lynn, and we'll put that information where you can have access to it also on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page uh, shortly after the program has ended. But this is an urgent request. Uh, this pastor has already spent 10 years in a Chinese prison falsely charged and convicted um, after having tried to go through the uh, the legal channels uh, to begin a ministry there to help build the church. Now, as uh, mentioned, Pastor Lynn had initially and for the last 10 years has seen his placement in the prison as the ministry that he is called to, but uh, without having much detail, because I'm certain his communication is somewhat um, censored, uh, it's made it, he's made it clear that because something dramatic has changed, uh, he's now reaching out and asking for help to to get him back home. Now, we know that President Trump has been very instrumental in um, achieving the release of Americans being detained in other countries. And let's hope and pray as this petition uh, is circulated to the right uh, people and places that perhaps that will also be the case for Pastor Lynn. We don't know what God's plan is for him in the days ahead, but he has asked for help. And I think we would do well to do a couple of things. Number one would be to remember him in prayer. This is Pastor David Lynn, a U.S. citizen imprisoned for his faith. And that's a quote from his daughter. Uh, Number two, to consider signing on to the petition uh, that will be circulated to the uh, relevant powers that be to try to secure his release. Um, And uh, again, these are a couple of things that we can do to make a difference for this brother uh, who has served in prison for the sake of the gospel. I want to remind you that tomorrow, Africa New Life will be my guest here in studio for both hours of the program. Food is, that's the theme of the program, because it really is the fundamental thing that opens the door to so much uh, ministry in Rwanda. While the genocide is, uh, took place over 20 years ago, you cannot imagine, I've been there several times, you cannot imagine the footprint that was left By this devastating event, this was the culmination of decades of um, infighting uh, in that country. It wasn't the first genocide. We hope it's the last. But there has been a uh, an historic divide there that has really taken so much resource from the country. So I want to encourage you uh, to consider what's happening there now. 
uh, certainly in the context of the history. But because of the work of Africa New Life, the government there that is very um, open to and supportive of Christian ministry has asked them to oversee much more work than uh, they initially have. In fact, their feeding program, I believe last year when we talked about it, um, they were feeding a, a million children. That has now exceeded two million. And that is a staggering number. Yet it represents the kind of effective ministry they're doing. It goes beyond simply providing the meal, but that is one way uh, that they can undergird these uh, children. And there are, well, millions of them that need help. Uh, and they also, of course, present the gospel. We're going to talk about all of that when I'm joined by the uh, director of uh, the Portland or the Oregon director of Africa New Life and uh, David Harms. And this is kind of a this is our ministry from the Portland area. So we'll have an opportunity to get an update. Certainly this listening audience has had a major, a profound impact on the work of Africa New Life in the past. We want to make sure that you are made aware of the progress that's being made, the work that's being done, as well as give you an opportunity to commit to uh, the ongoing work there. So tomorrow will be our Africa New Life Radiothon, um, and we're looking forward to that. I hope you can join us. Well, Friday, well, it will be Friday, and our plan is certainly to provide you with any breaking news that might um, break in on Friday, and but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news and encourage you to well, maybe put a smile on your face as a consequence. Just a reminder, uh, we put that uh, column by Adam Michelle. We talked with him earlier this hour on how much uh, Americans are actually paying in taxes and how much of a tax cut uh, we've enjoyed by region, by congressional district. You can actually plug in your information and find the answers for yourself as it relates to your uh, geographic area and your neighbors. Um, also, we'll uh, try to put this link to the Family Research Council information on how to petition, sign on to the petition uh, for the pastor and uh, how to listen to that uh, interview with Pastor Lynn's daughter, Alice Lynn, who appeared on Washington Watch with, Turney, uh, with Tony Perkins on that very subject. want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.